you have your Bibles with this morning, I invite you to open up to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, as we begin our journey through this letter in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with the first verse. 1 Peter 1, beginning with verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. I ask that you take your word this morning and refresh our minds, refresh our hearts, renew us in an understanding of what you have done on our behalf. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Open opposition simply unfriendly, consistent resistance. In other words, hostility. We live in a world of hostility. We live in a world that is openly resistant to the good news of Jesus Christ. We live in a world that is simply unfriendly to one another and also unfriendly to the good news of Jesus Christ. But we don't just live in a world that is hostile to the good news, or we don't just live in a place where there's persecution for being religious or faithful. We live in a world that's full of suffering and trials. You could say that we are constantly facing hostility from a variety of angles. One is the persecution we face from other people for our faith. The other is just simply the flesh I don't know if you've noticed, but getting old, well, I haven't noticed yet, but think, getting old, I hear, is not that easy. And sometimes it's not even getting old. Sometimes it's simply experiencing life in the flesh. We're constantly under trial. We're constantly under persecution. We are living in the midst of hostility. You could say it this way, we are living in the midst of a major personality conflict. 
Have you ever been in the middle of a personality conflict where you go into a meeting and you know there's two people there where their personalities just clash? They may actually agree on the same material, but their personalities clash in such a way that nothing can get done. When personalities clash, usually it just leads to dysfunction. You could say that we are in the midst of a personality clash because we are in the midst of two kingdoms clashing together. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. We are in the midst, you could say, of living between two worlds. We've got the world to come, the new kingdom, yet we are still here on earth. We are living between two worlds. We are living in hostility. The question is, how do we live in the midst of this hostility? How do we live in this sense of we're not there yet and where we are is not our specific home? How do we live as pilgrims or strangers, people who are on a journey toward a future destination? There's been kind of three ways in which people normally live in the midst of hostility. One of the first things that people do in the midst of hostility is they simply escape. Just, right? I mean, if there's trouble, one option is just to run the other way. And in the history of Christianity, this has been done at different times. There's a lot of problems, so let's just escape out where there is no trouble and just be by ourselves. Escape mentality. One option in the face of hostility is just to bunker down, to just basically play defense, right? Let's get with one another, keep one another safe, and keep our mouths shut and just do the best we can to be safe ourselves. Bunker down. So you can escape, you can bunker down. There's also a third option. You can return what? Hostility with what? Hostility. What happens in your house when somebody raises their voice? This is where I'm, this is, I'm asking for crowd participation today. Thing, thing. What happens when somebody raises their voice in your house? You raise your voice back, thing, right? What hostility usually produces what? More hostility. Not just in our personal lives, but just also think politically and also geographically across the world. When one country makes a move, what does another country do? They respond. Yeah, and that's just human nature. Hostility produces more hostility. And sometimes, even in Christianity, this has been part of our history. Culture attacks, so what do we do? Attack culture back. Oh, you're all going to hell thing. This is a disaster thing. So we fight right back at culture. Living in the midst of hostility usually produces, let's escape, or it produces, let's bunker down, or it produces, let's fight back. The letter of 1 Peter, I would argue, is written to people that are living in the midst of hostility, and it gives them clear instruction on how to live as people who are between two worlds in the midst of hostility. You see, the people that are receiving the letter of 1 Peter the first time, they're what they're considered exiles. In other words, they really don't have a political home. They don't have a, a place where they can say they are really, they're not living in the place where their citizenship is at. Does that make sense? They're not living in a place where their citizenship is at, so they're in a different country or a different place from where they actually belong, so they really have no political or military clout. And so that's a problem. And then you add to that 
they're beginning to face persecution for their faith or their religious beliefs. So here you have a group of people that are strangers in a strange land, away from home, and they're also beginning to face persecution for what they believe. They're living in the midst of hostility because they know they're not home yet. So the question is, how do we live in the midst of hostility? This morning, I just want you to breathe easy. Because this morning, there are actually no commands. Today is just all about getting refreshed. Because in the next five weeks, get ready, thing, there are commands galore coming in the rest of 1 Peter. The first 12 verses that we're looking at today, there are no imperatives, which is a big deal. An imperative is really an exhortation, a, a, a word that says do something. It's putting the responsibility on the listener or the reader of the letter. The first 12 verses of 1 Peter contain no imperatives, no call for the listeners to do something, but rather the first 12 verses, all they do is give us a description. All they do is remind us of what God has done and who we are as a result of what God has done. My prayer this morning is that you would be refreshed today. Breathe easy. There's no seven steps today. There's simple refreshment as we are reminded of what God has done and who we are as a result of God's action. Let's just take a quick look this morning at verses 3 through 9 to try and understand what God has done. It starts in verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. There's an amazing amount of good news right here in a couple of words. It's all pointing to what God has done. Now, there's this term in here, born again. Sometimes we run from the term born again because, well, there's another denominational group that kind of has got a corner on that market, and we don't like the way they use it because it maybe puts too much emphasis on human responsibility, so therefore, we don't talk about it at all, when in reality, it's a key concept in the New Testament, this understanding of being born again. John chapter 3, the most famous Bible passage ever, right? John 3.16. That conversation starts with a conversation about being born again. And Jesus basically says, you have to be born again. So I would say it's a rather important concept for us to understand. And we should grab on to this idea of being born again. But we should remember who causes the new birth. Look at the good news here in verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. We cannot ourselves bring new life. We ourselves, by our own strength, cannot cause us to be new creatures in Jesus Christ. This is all because of what? What God has done. All First Peter is doing here is reminding us of what God has done. It says, He has extended mercy. And that mercy has given us new life or has regenerated us or has caused us to be born again. Mercy is different than grace. Grace is a position. It's, it's a position of favor towards us. God is, God is graceful. In other words, he's in a position of favor towards us. Mercy is the manifestation of that grace. It's the outworking now. So mercy is when an individual does something to meet a need that they can meet. So when you cry out for mercy, what you're doing is you're saying, hey, I've done something, and you've got the ability to what? Do something about it. So for example... Let's say you're at college, and I'm sure this didn't happen to anyone here, but you're getting ready for an 8 a.m. class, and you've hit the snooze button way too many times, 7.55, and you're like, your roommate wakes up, and he says, hey, 
we got to go. we got to turn in our papers at 8. And you go, paper? 8? And you say to your roommate, Franklin, have mercy on me. Can Franklin have mercy on you at that time? Franklin's got no authority. Think, who do you need to have mercy on you that morning? Your professor. Because your need is what? An extension on the paper. Who has the authority to give you the extension? Your professor. Your professor can extend mercy to you. He can meet your need through his authority. This morning, we are reminded of God's mercy in that he met our greatest need, the forgiveness of sins, through his power, the death of his son on the cross. And this morning, we're just simply reminded of what God has done. When we come to the communion table, we get to participate in the death of Jesus Christ. We are united in that death, and we're reminded of what God has done. You know, I kind of got a feeling that Jesus had a little insight into the human mind, that he had a little behind-the-scenes knowledge of how humans operate. And so therefore, what did Jesus do? Do this in remembrance of me. He put something in place that would constantly bring us back to what? what he did, his death on the cross. And so we constantly gather around the communion table. Why? Because we're gathering around what he did. We're reminded of God's mercy. And Peter says to the people this morning, basically just saying, hey, remember what God has done for you. And as a result of what God has done for you, this is what God is going to do for you. Let's look and see what God is going to do for us. We look here in verse 4 and we see what we're going to do or why we have a living hope. It's because we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. How many of you this morning are interested in an inheritance? At least there were some honest people at the first service. We've got three thing. I don't know anyone that's not interested in inheritance. When's the last time you turned up at a family meeting and said, hey, you know what? Just take, please, just take me out thing. I, I don't want anything really at all. Not interested in a gift thing. <laughs> yeah, right thing. Right? It's, I'll send my lawyer over tomorrow to sign the paperwork thing. We all want an inheritance. We want something down the road, something that's going to give us security, something that we can look forward to. Well, Peter's explaining this morning, saying, hey, remember what God has done for you and showing you his mercy, therefore giving you an imperishable inheritance. In other words, giving you the resurrection. This inheritance, this living hope that we have is not some idea that Peter's like, well, you know what? Jesus has got some power, so there's a chance, I think, that he might be able to overcome death someday. Let's look at the basis for this confidence. The basis for the living hope is at the end of verse 3 there where he says, to a living hope. Why? through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, Peter is saying, hey, you can have all this hope, not because I've got a grand idea or a grand scheme, but because of this historical event that has taken place. We look back at the resurrection of Jesus for our confidence, for our future resurrection and the glorious coming of the new kingdom. And this is our inheritance, an imperishable, unfading inheritance. Think how much time and effort we put into a human inheritance, right? <laughs> Let's be honest, folks, right? What do we do? Well, I better make an extra phone call to Grandma so I stay on the good list. And then, then when it comes on, when, when it's time to come to collect the inheritance, what are we willing to do? 
spend money to get money, right? If you've got an inheritance, how many are willing to hire a lawyer to make sure you get the inheritance? You want it. Thing. You're going to go after it. People do this all the time. It's because we want something great. We want a gift. Well, this morning, we're just reminded that we've been given an inheritance already because of God's mercy. Therefore, as His people, we have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. And then therefore, the description goes on here in 1 Peter saying, hey, now you can rejoice greatly with inexpressible joy. You know, at this point in the letter, you kind of want to say, uh, Peter, did you forget who you're writing to? Peter, did you forget the, the term that you used at the beginning? Exiles? Peter, did you forget the persecution that we're undergoing? Peter didn't forget that. The Holy Spirit's inspiring him to say, hey, in the midst of being an exile, in the midst of the suffering, what does he say? You rejoice. How is this possible? How can we rejoice in the midst of suffering? We can rejoice because the suffering and the trial cannot take away our inheritance. Look with me at verse 6. At the beginning of verse 6, it says, In this you rejoice. So, in what? In this. You have to look back. What was he just talking about? Our imperishable, unfaded inheritance. The resurrection. Whatever happens to us here on this earth, nothing can touch that inheritance. All that suffering and trials can do is make us cling harder to that inheritance. And that's why the Apostle Peter here is, is saying, hey, in the midst of trials, all the trials doing is refining you. It's, it's taking away all the fluff and forcing you to cling to one thing. What does a good refinement process do? Purifies, right? It takes away everything and it brings it back to exactly the one thing that you're looking for. If you're looking for gold, it takes away all of the other stuff and just gives you gold. What Peter is saying here is what a trial does. Is that it refines you to the point that all you're doing is holding on to the one thing that matters. Jesus himself. What happens when people are undergoing trials and sufferings and come to the end of their life? No one says, hey, can you bring up my clubs? I'd like to clean my pitching wedge a little bit. Right? What do they say? Call my children. Call my brother. Bring communion. Because what's happening? What's happening is you're being refined. You're all of a sudden coming to recognize like what's important really quickly. Right? Because you've only got one thing to grasp onto. Eternal hope. So trials refine us, enforce us to grasp onto the one thing that is eternal. The one thing that does not fade. Jesus Christ. And that's why the, Peter is saying here this morning, saying, hey, you can have inexpressible joy in the midst of trials. Why? Because that trial cannot take away your greatest inheritance. In very simple terms, what's being said here this morning in 1 Peter chapter 1, it's basically saying this. You are God's people and you have an imperishable inheritance. Rejoice. You are God's people. You have an imperishable inheritance. Rejoice. It's just describing for us what God has done and who we are as a result of what God has done. Our biggest dilemma is our identity crisis. We forget whose we are. If we could just remember constantly, I am God's. 
Therefore, what flows from me needs to honor God because He owns me. He has a great future for me. Peter's just laying the groundwork here. He's going to come the next couple of weeks right at us with some harsh words. He's going to come at us with some things that are really countercultural. But we first have to understand the foundation that when we hear these commands that come, these imperatives and these exhortations, we hear them from the God who gives us life. Therefore, we look at them as life-giving commands. Secure on our foundation of who we are as God's people. Now we want to know how to operate as God's people as we live between two worlds. I don't know about you, but for the most part, most people are conflict-averse. Right? Conflict comes up, what do you do? <laughs> Flee. Right? As fast as you can thing, and let's just get out of the situation Let's not deal with it. Hey, let's talk about the baseball game last night. We don't like conflict. We don't like hostility. We usually don't deal with it, which sometimes means then what? We're actually not experiencing all that life has to offer because we're not dealing with all of the underlying issues. What First Peter is going to do to us, it's going to say, yeah, get into the conflict. Get into the hostility. And here's how you live in the midst of it. And it's going to be some hard words for us. It's going to be some challenges for us. But we come from the perspective that we're standing on a foundation of what God has done for us and what God has promised will be there for us in the future. So, we know we've got a glorious future. We know we've got a glorious inheritance. But what? There's a here and now, right? Right? I mean, <laughs> we've got to deal with the here and now. So each week for the next six weeks, we're going to have a little segment of the sermon called Here and Now. I mean, we've got this glorious future, but the reality is, what do we do here and now? And the next couple of weeks are going to be really practical about what we do, but today is kind of a generic here and now. It's, it's more of a result of what's being said here. The here and now for us this next week is very simple. We need to saturate in God's truth to keep perspective. We need to saturate in God's truth to keep perspective. We have to be reminded of what God has done for us. We have to be reminded of who we are continually. So therefore, the Lenten challenge for the month ahead is this, the seven-minute challenge. I would argue the greatest step that we can take from this passage this morning is to take seven minutes a day and sit under the truth of God's Word. Now, for some, this is a stretch. For others, like seven, we need to multiply that times seven. That's fine. But we need to start. We need to get ourselves in a position where we're putting ourselves under God's truth so that our perspective is changed and we're renewed in our understanding. We're refreshed by what God has done for us and who God says we are. The seven-minute challenge. That's the here and now. That's how we live in the midst of the hostility. We accept the seven-minute challenge to begin to understand God's Word so we can see things from God's perspective. Seven is actually the number for perfection thing. It's the number for, for wholeness. The seventh day is what? Sabbath day. Keep it holy. You have that Sabbath because it's that time to, time to kind of renew and refocus and get yourself set for the week ahead. Do you think 
God really created the Sabbath going, oh, I've got an extra day here. What are we going to do? <laughs> God's got a little insight into how human beings operate. He was aware that there's a need to recenter our lives, that there's a need to get refocused, to be nurtured, to put ourselves back on, on focusing on Him. That's what the Sabbath does. It refreshes us to be who we were created to be. You read any book these days, even from a secular perspective on how to be a great person, they always have this line in there about taking time to think, right? Take some time out of your day to think. They're all right, what they're all missing is this. What are you thinking upon? We don't need to take time out of our day to to think and just think. We need to take time out of our day to think about the way God reveals things from His Word. The best thing we can do is to have a daily Sabbath, the seven-minute challenge where we saturate ourselves in God's truth so we have his perspective. Get ready. You think it's hostile now thing? Get ready. You start walking more faithful, what's going to happen? There's only going to be more resistance. That's what the Bible at least shows. Every time someone started to faithfully follow Jesus, no one was there like, oh yeah, keep going. This is great. It's so easy. It's only going to get harder. Thing. If you're not in a trial right now, you're about to be in a trial or you're leaving a trial. We're going to be in the middle of hostility. The question is this. In the midst of the hostility, will we be able to say, blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can when we recognize what God has done for us and when we recognize what God has for us in an imperishable inheritance. We're living between two worlds, but we're called to live between two worlds to glorify God. Let's get after it over the next six weeks and understand what God has for us right here for the here and now. Let us pray. Almighty God, we recognize right now that there's a variety of trials and in a variety of different ways that we're facing trials, whether it be physically, a persecution, whatever it might be, Lord. I pray for anyone in the midst of trial that you would give them your perspective and that you would give the power to cling to you alone. Lord, I pray that you now would do a mighty work, that you would grant each of us the discipline to saturate ourselves in your truth every day. Lord, I pray that you'd unite our hearts together here at King of Glory around your purposes. We thank you for what you have done. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for the promised inheritance. In Jesus' name, amen.